But if Trump loses, which is at this point the much higher likelihood, I think, then the question is, what kind of ferment does that set off? That's E.J. Dion Jr., a columnist at the Washington Post, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and frequent commentator at NPR, MSNBC, and PBS. Today, we'll hear from E.J. about his recent book, Why the Right Went Wrong, and get his take on the causes of the recent fracture of the Republican Party. You're listening to Common Ground, a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. E.J. Dionne's book, Why the Right Went Wrong, tracks the fracture of the Republican Party from the Goldwater movement in the early 60s all the way up to Donald Trump. I spoke with E.J. on May 17, 2016. At that point, Trump was the presumptive nominee, but Paul Ryan and other establishmentarians hadn't come around to embracing him or not embracing him. Still, the significance of Trump's revolt on the right was becoming clear. We discuss the Trumpification of the right, the past and future of American conservatism, and what Burkean or moderate conservatives should do in the face of a Trump takeover. EJ's insights will carry weight well beyond this election season. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Common Ground. So we're, we're talking with EJ Dion about his book, Why the Right Went Wrong. Uh, EJ, let's start with the opening line of your book. Quote, the history of contemporary American conservatism is a story of disappointment and betrayal, end quote. How is that true, and how, in your view, has it led to the radicalization or, as you call it, the Trumpification of the right? Right. Well, the whole, uh, it's good to be here, by the way. Yeah. The, the thesis of the book is that ever since Barry Goldwater's candidacy in 1964, conservative politicians have had to make a series of promises they couldn't keep because Goldwater... I would argue, radicalized conservatism and created this series of demands that um, uh, Republican politicians election after election uh, acceded to. They promised that they would reduce the size of government. Mm -hmm. They promised that over time they'd roll back the cultural changes of the 1960s. And of late, many of them, notably Donald Trump, have promised to reverse the ethnic makeup of the country to something that looks like 1940. In terms of the size of government, they have never been able to succeed because Americans are, as two great analysts of public opinion wrote back in the 1960s, ideological conservatives but operational liberals, which is they are quite critical of government in the abstract but actually want government to do a lot of things Mm -hmm. uh, in the concrete. The best example, I think, is of Tea Partiers who say they want to cut the size of government but do not want to cut Social Security or Medicare. It might be sheer accident that many Tea Partiers are near, at, or over the age of 65. But nonetheless, Americans welcome a lot of government activity. So neither Nixon nor Reagan nor either President Bush has been able to reduce the size of government. Um, Reversing the cultural changes of the 60s uh, is not possible because the country doesn't want to do that either. There's continued resistance in some quarters to civil rights. But people do not want to get rid of civil rights or feminism. And if anything, the cultural change has continued. There's been no more striking or rapid 
change in public opinion than attitudes on homosexuality towards gays and lesbians and of late gay marriage. And then changing the ethnic makeup of the country requires, say, the deportation of 11 million people. Well, Donald Trump promises that, but most Americans know that's unrealistic. So by failing to keep the promises they kept making, conservative politicians have created a cycle of disappointment, betrayal, and I argue radicalization. Uh, the story of my book is more complicated than this, but you can sort of take take it this way that, you know, Nixon fell, Ford lost, and then we moved to Reagan. Uh, Reagan governed, George H.W. Bush took over. After he fell, we moved to Gingrich. Mm-hmm. Then we moved to W., and uh, after W. fell, he was criticized for being insufficiently conservative, and we moved to the Tea Party. And so Trump is a kind of a logical, in a certain way, a logical part of that progression. Two other quick points out of the book. One is that in this period, the Republicans became more and more dependent on the votes of white working class Americans and delivered nothing material their way. This isn't just a social democratic liberal like me saying this. It's people um, like Governor Tim, former Governor Tim Pawlenty of Minnesota, who talked about the party of Sam's Club. It's conservatives like Ross Douthat or uh, Raihan Salam, who said if the Republicans don't start delivering for these people, they're going to face a heap of trouble. And that heap of trouble is Donald Trump, who is drawing heavily from that constituency. And then lastly, since Goldwater, the Republican Party has uh, gone through both uh, a series of purges and a series of withdrawals. Purges in the sense that first liberal and then moderate Republicans were driven out uh, often in primaries, usually in primaries. And at the same time, moderate voters have withdrawn from the party. And you can see that all over the country in places like the um, suburban collar around Philadelphia, suburban counties outside of Boston, Chicago, uh, on the West Coast. Um, so when uh, the non-Trumpian, non-Cruzian candidates were looking around for voters, well, a lot of them weren't in the uh, Republican the Party. Really lackluster performance of candidates like Jeb Bush and even to a certain extent the sort of so-called moderate establishment Republicans of uh, Bush and uh, Kasich. And they weren't, pre- and it's worth mentioning, right. none of them would have been moderate by any definition exactly. of the word 25 years right. ago. I mean, these were very solidly conservative Republicans who were just not seen as conservative enough or were seen as two quotes establishment. I'm, I'm a bit of a skeptic of that establishment word, uh, partly because I think to hang on to power a lot of establishmentarians have gone over to rather right-wing views. It was a great piece by two smart conservatives in the National Review, Rich Lowry and uh, Ramesh Panuru. Uh, their piece was called Establishment Tea, and they talked about how establishment politicians in 2014 had moved toward Tea Party views in order to hang on to their power. So the establishmentarians got what they wanted, which is power, and the Tea Partiers got the concessions on ideology. A few elements of your narrative remind me of this quote that, from William F. Buckley that was featured in the recent film Best of Enemies about Buckley and his relationship with Gore Vidal. One thing apparently Buckley said at the end of his life was that he felt like he won all the little battles, all the little cultural battles of conservatism, but lost the war in the sense that the conservatives didn't, in the end, win the culture wars, didn't win the sort of cultural conservation that they were trying to uphold in the face of increasing multiculturalism. And you, and you say that, or argue that, a lot of Americans don't want to go back to this pre-multicultural America. But is the rise of Trump, has that actually 
proven that more Americans, more white lower class Americans perhaps, do actually want to sort of hold multi, the rise of multiculturalism at bay? Right. It should be said that Trump's support is not limited within of the course. Republican Party yeah. to uh, working class people. He also yeah. gets other streams uh, of support. He may actually have uh, picked up uh, a fair number of moderate Republicans, and there's evidence of that in the polls, uh, partly because all of he, these other opponents who were more moderate in their tone were actually still very conservative on cultural issues. Uh, Trump gives off the sense of utter indifference to cultural issues, mm -hmm. which I think may, was appealing to moderate voters who didn't have another alternative. But is there a, a pushback against culture change? Of course there is. There always has been. I mean, if you, I think that 20% of Americans are regularly quite far right mm -hmm. of center. That was true in 1950. It was true in 1960. It's true today. And I think in particular, a lot of culturally conservative Americans are uneasy with the rather radical change in the ethnic makeup of the country over the right. years since the 1965 Immigration Act. We have uh, the percentage of the foreign born in the United States now is roughly what it was in 1910. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are a lot of people who are uneasy uh, about that. There obviously are older Americans who are culturally conservative who are uneasy with a lot of other cultural changes and is the most significant word in Trump's make America great again mm -hmm. slogan is the word again mm -hmm. because the implication is that we were once great and we are great no longer a group of Democrats put out a, an alternative baseball hat that America said that said America is already great mm -hmm. um, and I think that does go to a real deep division in the country we just we do some polling with uh, here at Brookings with our friends at the Public Religion uh, Research Institute, PRRI. And um, if you ask whether America was better off in the past or now, the country splits pretty evenly. Interesting. And that is a, sort of a, at the heart of the argument in this election campaign. There's another line I want to quote just for listeners to get a sense of uh, some of the main arguments of your book. And this line is among my favorites in the book, and I think it cuts to the heart of the significance of your project. You write, a few pages after uh, the initial quote that I offered, you write, the radicalization of conservatism is not solely an issue for the Republican Party or for the conservative movement itself. It is a problem for our efforts to reach compromise and common ground. It is a problem for how we govern ourselves. It is a problem for all of us. Reforming American conservatism is one of the most important tasks of our time, end quote. When I read that, I thought of, I, I was just wondering, what are some alternative forms of conservatism that emphasize common ground? And the first one that came up in my mind was Burkean conservatism, which you do, you do talk at great length about in your book, and you, you reference Eisenhower as being in many ways a Burkean conservative. Can you, can you talk a bit about that? Sure. And, and it should be, you know, fair warning to listeners, liberals have been throwing Burke at <laughs> yeah, conservatives right. back <laughs> since the 1950s. There's a great essay by Arthur Schlesinger Jr. about the then new right, the Buckley right, where he quoted a lot of Burke at them. And so this is, uh, you know, so I am not innovative in quoting Burke, but Burke, yet. it hasn't worked yeah. yet from, <laughs> from our point of view as yeah. uh, liberals. But Burke is a good guide to what conservatism is. You know, Burke talked about the importance of both a uh, desire to conserve and a disposition to improve. Mm -hmm. And Burke understood that the odd thing is that preserving a tradition sometimes requires change. And it's one of the reasons I point to Eisenhower 
who is often viewed, uh, Joe Scarborough said this, he said conservatives often view him as a liberal in golf shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but in fact, he is, um, I think he is a Burkean conservative. He accepted that some of the changes in the new de- of the New Deal were necessary to preserve uh, the American way of life mm-hmm. uh, and that, that rolling them back was both a political impossibility and actually not a very constructive uh, thing to do. And yet, I think by every measure, he was a conservative. He, he um, you know, the role of religion in public life actually increased in Eisenhower's years, right. something we don't think about very much. Kevin Cruz, a historian at Princeton, wrote a very interesting book on this. The uh, He was a budget balancer. He was fiscally prudent. His uh, farewell address was a model of prudence and Burkean balance. He used the word balance over and over again between public and private mm-hmm. and between various endeavors. And he did not see the state as the enemy. He was not a big government guy. And in that farewell address, he had a, almost a, touched a libertarian note when he warned about all the government-supported science and research that might get in the way of independent thought. So he was by no means an unalloyed apologist for big government. And yet he also uh, inaugurated two of the biggest programs in our history, the interstate highway system and the federal student loan program that allowed millions, including me, by the way, to go to college. And so I view Eisenhower as in a Burkean conservative tradition that I think is also represented at that time by Harold Macmillan in Britain, mm-hmm. by Conrad Adenauer in West Germany, then West Germany. And it was a, uh, you know, it was a conservatism that accepted a certain amount of change, accepted the need for a certain amount of government action to prevent chaos and injustice. These were conservatives who were seared by the experiences of the rise of fascism, the Great Depression, and World mm-hmm. War II. And so they knew there needed to be some corrections on the market, some action by government to alleviate conditions of the least off. At the same time, they were broadly trying to preserve a market economy and a, a traditional way of life. And, and I think that kind of conservatism still has a big audience in the country. And it is also the kind of conservatism that could find some common ground with liberals. In mm-hmm. some ways, um, George H.W. Bush embodied some of this conservatism. His father, even more so, Prescott Bush, the senator, was an open Eisenhower Republican, who also, by the way, came under attack from the right in his day back Uh, in the 1950s. But think about what George H.W. Bush did. Two of his uh, big achievements were the uh, extension of the Clean Air Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act, where these were actions by government that seemed, you know, in the one instance, uh, uh, protecting a public good, the environment, after all the words conservation and conservative have the same roots. And on the other hand, you know, extending rights to a group whose rights we came to recognize. Just to remind listeners, Burke was an 18th century figure, right, critic of the French Revolution. Can you identify any current living, working, Burkean conservatives or any? Um, You know, one person who who very much, a thinker, uh, who very much draws on Burke, has written a book about Burke, uh, is Yuval Levin. Oh, of course. Of uh, National Affairs Magazine, who has a new book, The Great Debate, about Burke and Tom Paine. Right. Um, You know, and he has a new book out where I agree with some of his analysis. I don't think I agree broadly with his political conclusions, Mm -hmm. but he does talk about, and this I have written as well, that, you know, there's a lot of nostalgia in our politics that the right yearns for the cultural values of the 60s and the left yearns for the economic security 
of oh, the 1960s. And I once wrote a column about Rick Santorum when he was running for president yeah. saying that Santorum wants the culture of the, six, of the 50s without the support of a unionized eco uh, economy uh, that provided standards of living that right. underwrote right. family life, that underwrote the traditional family. Um, so he is, you know, Yuval is arguing that we can't go back to then, which I agree with. We disagree, I think, on the role of the state in buffering uh, some of these changes. Mm -hmm. But Yuval is, um, you know, one person who is clearly a Burkean kind of conservative. I um, also, there is a very uh, interesting conservative politician in Britain called Jesse Norman, who wrote a book on Burke also uh, called The First Conservative. And um, he, it, it was a wonderful book. I, as a liberal, I wrote a column about it, and I actually told, I got to meet Norman, who's a fascinating man, and I said, you've got to find a conservative to write uh, about mm -hmm. uh, your book, because I can't do you much good with your people. But, you know, you've got to love Burke's idea that a well-ordered society is a partnership of the dead, the living, and the yet-to-be-born which is a kind of forward-looking traditionalism. And also, by the way, it sounds like environmentalism. And Norman talks about not big government, but slow government, right. uh, rooted in a certain modesty and humility about what government can achieve. And Norman also has, a, you know, is straight up about saying, and I quote Norman here, uh, Burke also clips the wings of many contemporary conservatives. Uh, while he, and again quoting Norman, helped establish modern conceptions of nationhood and national allegiance, he rejected military adventures. He celebrated religious observance but despised moral absolutism. Mm. And Norman also saw Burke as implicitly offering, a, a, and again I quote him, a profound critique of, the, of market fundamentalism now prevalent in Western societies. So I, I think there's a modest, there are other new books about Burke that have come out. There's a, there's a modest Burkean revival. I think that reflects the sense on the part of many conservatives. My, my colleague, by the way, at the Washington Post, Mike Gerson, I think in many ways, is a Burkean mm. conservative. David Brooks is certainly it's a Burkean, right. very explicitly Burkean conservative. He's also kind of a Whig, uh, <laughs> David is. I, I, I wrote an earlier book where I spent a lot of time talking about the Whigs, and I came into NPR one day when I was doing my thing there with David, and I said, David, this whole book was worth it because I finally figured out why you are crosswise to American politics. You are the last living, surviving American Whig. <laughs> uh, because if you read David, he's really all Henry Clay and Abraham Lincoln, right, right. you know? So I think there is an interest here, but our politics, the current right finds it very hard, I think, to channel Burkean moderation, because I do think that a Burkean definition is of conservatism emphasizes mm -hmm. moderation. Uh, Burke criticized, you know, the politics of rage and frenzy, and you've got an awful lot of rage and frenzy uh, going on on the right right now. You, you've talked about, and you, you mentioned him in your bibliographic essay, George Nash, whose work on conservatism in America is pretty foundational. If, there any, if there's anything that Nash has shown, it's that the post-war conservative movement had a variety of different factions, and, and Nash talks a bit about Burke and his relevance there. I, I'm wondering, so Ted Cruz, Paul Ryan, and Donald Trump, these are clearly three different kinds of conservatives, but they each have at least some kind of pull in Republican politics, and indeed, right now, Trump, the presumptive nominee, has a great deal of pull. What are the key differences between these three sorts of conservative, and who do you think will mostly determine the near future of the right? Trump is 
so complicated because he reflects certain strands of conservatism very well and opposes other aspects of modern conservatism mm-hmm. so forcefully. He represents a form of nationalism that some conservatives accept and some conservatives reject. He uh, reflects an attitude on race and immigration, which again has deep roots in the American conservative right. tradition, we should say. And my book chides my conservative friends for being, I think, in, ex- with some noble exceptions, unwilling to face the role of racial reaction and opposition to civil rights in the formation of the modern conservative movement and coalition. So, but on that, he reflects some conservatives, but others are aghast at, you know, certainly what he said about Mexicans. David Um, Brooks is one of these. David Brooks is is one. Mike Gerson again today. You know, Lindsey Graham, Ben Sass of uh, Nebraska, where this to them is just not what modern or any kind of conservatism should be about. There's a certain um, ambivalence about the market. On the one hand, this is a guy who obviously celebrates the market by telling us how rich he is. Right. all the things he's built. On the other hand, you know, he is uh, very critical of free trade, proposes Mm -hmm. uh, being tough both on foreign competitors and on companies that move jobs abroad. Mm -hmm. We'll see how long that lasts uh, on his part. I mean, the problem with Trump is one never knows whether what he says tomorrow will equal what he said yesterday, let alone today. But that is sort of scrapes against conservatism. Um, Cruz is a rather pure Tea Party conservative. What's interesting is I'm not sure there is as much daylight between the ideology of Ted Cruz and the ideology of uh, Paul Ryan. Right. Um, you know, the Ryan budgets are pretty reflective of Cruzism. The temperament is very different. And Ryan talks a great deal about wanting to lift up the poor. And he channels, you know, some of the wonderful rhetoric of Jack Kemp, who right. was one of his mentors. But his budgets are very austere and would cut quite a lot of aid to the poor. And I I think Ryan, you know, I I think Ryan is still kind of in formation in a funny way. I think that the, um, you know, the Ryan of Ryan's budgets is no moderate or moderate conservative. And, you know, people who welcome his rhetoric lifting up the poor would like uh, a little bit of money to back it up. It's going to be interesting to see where... Ryan goes. It's not clear to me that any of the three of them necessarily represent the future of conservatism because I think, you know, two things happen in this election. One, the long shot, I still think, is that Trump wins the election. Mm -hmm. And then Lord knows how he redefines what it means to be conservative. What is his relationship with conservatives in Congress? Is he, as he sometimes suggests, he wants to be a deal maker who work with Democrats or as he other times suggests, especially when he's courting Republican votes, that he'll be happy to work with Republicans in Congress and let them, sounds like, write a lot of the uh, legislation. So but if Trump loses, which is at this point the much higher likelihood, I think, then the question is, what kind of ferment does that set off in the Republican Party. And I think it could be quite considerable because if the Republicans lose the presidency again and they have not, you know, they have won the majority of the popular vote only once since 1992. If they lose again, I think there may be voices in the party who are not, uh, who are more moderate than any of the three, than Trump is sui generis, but then Cruz or Ryan, who might begin to speak up. I think it would be very interesting to see 
if the Democrats took the Senate, if there would be any House Republicans left who might say, uh, we're tired of obstructionism, we're willing to work with the other side. Now, that'd be very difficult given the structure of power in the House, but it'd be very interesting to see if those people pop up. So, you know, as I say, what I'm hoping for is something for the 21st century that is the sort of pragmatic conservatism of Eisenhower's sort. Uh, We'll see if that's even possible anymore. I'm wondering, so in the news just recently in the past couple of days, there's been a lot of coverage of whether or not Paul Ryan uh, will be making peace or finding common ground with Donald Trump. I'm just kind of wondering, to, to what extent do you think that these, that this is real, that the sort of they're actually talking policy and there might be some policy common ground here? Or to what extent is this just they need to find some kind of unity if they're going to move forward? You know, I, I uh, couldn't resist tweeting that day when Ryan was meeting with him saying that they were talking about how united they were in talking about their quest for being united and seeking unity (laughs) because they didn't want to talk about how potentially divided they are. You know, it's a very interesting ideological and moral test of a lot of Republicans because it is very odd to see, not entirely surprising, but very odd to see an awful lot of Republicans uh, who basically said, Uh, that Donald Trump was one of the most inappropriate people ever to run for president who criticized him in the harshest terms, suddenly putting up their hands and saying, well, he's won the nomination, so we're going to support him. There are some who have held out, Sass, Lindsey Graham, some some others, some conservative writers, Bill Kristol, Mm -hmm. you know, who are holding out and saying this is impossible. So it'll be an interesting moral test, and and it'll be fascinating to know uh, if a year from now, the uh, people who fell into line look better to folks or the people who resisted? Who will have more standing in the party, mm-hmm. those who went along or those uh, who resisted? With, with Trump, the presumptive nominee, I, I am wondering, related to that point you just made, what do you think are the options for the center-right Republicans or even the Burkean conservatives, such as your colleague David Brooks, if Trump re- it becomes the Republican nominee and if he, he even has a decent shot at the general election, what are their options moving forward as conservatives? Do they just tear up their Republican cards or do they just wait to fight another day? I think they um, put their Republican cards in the freezer uh, during this election campaign. Many of them, I think, will either openly or quietly support uh, Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. Some of them are hoping to get a conservative candidate on the ballot so they can oppose Trump without voting for Clinton. And also, Some of them have a pragmatic political reason for that. They figure they might draw some conservatives out to vote for Republicans lower down the ticket, Mm -hmm. you know, while they voted for the conservative uh, protest candidate. And then I think that uh, I I think there might be some conversions into the Democratic Party out of this, uh, depending on how Hillary Clinton's administration goes. But I think most of them go back and fight inside the Republican Mm -hmm. Party again, you know, historically. Uh, that's happened a lot. There have been defections for one election where people are utterly dissatisfied with the direction their party takes, and then they come back in and, and try to win back control. Talk about the left. What about the Bernie Sanders-Hillary Clinton divide? S- Sanders has pretty effectively pulled Clinton to the left in some ways, but perhaps more significantly, I'm wondering, has the rise of Sanders uh, mainstreamed democratic socialism on the American left? You know, it's funny. There was always... The, Richard Hofstadter many years ago said that Franklin Roosevelt gave 
American politics and the Democratic Party, a social democratic tinge. Mm -hmm. And when you go back and look at the history of American socialism, people like Debs and particularly people like Norman Thomas and the late Michael Harrington, who are major American socialist leaders, had a major effect on liberalism, that there was always a a certain amount of common ground between democratic socialists who tended to be anti-communist or almost universally were anti-communist and progressive capitalists. They they tended to be in favor of the same reforms. Mm -hmm. What Sanders has done is I think reminded us very usefully of what a small d uh, political spectrum looks like. That since the... um, 90s, I think we had kind of cut the left wing off or barricaded right. uh, the left wing of, again, a democratic political spectrum off. Um, and I think Sanders, you know, you had all these people saying Barack Obama is a socialist. And I always said that I know socialists and they're insulted when yeah. Barack Obama is called a socialist. <laughs> He's not. He's a progressive capitalist. So Bernie has reminded us, wait a minute, there is some space out here that is not unreasonable. It's not wild to be for single-payer health care, since Canada and a lot of other free countries have it. It's not wild to say we should have free college education, because guess what? About 30 years ago, when you looked at the actual price of a college education at state universities, Mm -hmm. we had something very close to free public education. These aren't wild ideas. Mm -hmm. They are expensive. They are a little outside the realm of uh, possibility right now. And when you compare Sanders to Clinton, they are differences of degree and speed more than they are fundamental differences. The uh, Hillary Clinton uh, wants to expand health coverage to include everybody, too. Mm -hmm. She wants a Medicare buy-in. She's probably be for a public option. So she thinks the best way to do that is by building on Obamacare. I don't think if you had a bill in Congress to do any of these things, Bernie Sanders would vote against it. Uh, Similarly, on college tuition, she's for free community college, then wants income-based tuitions for four-year institutions. So, and, and the other thing is, I think the whole democratic reality moved leftward after the crash of 2008. A whole lot of ideas that seemed awfully good ideas to centrist Democrats like deregulating Wall Street don't look like such good ideas after the economic crash. Bill Clinton himself has second thoughts about some of the financial deregulation uh, back in the 1990s. You know, the, so that what, you know, what you're seeing is, I think, not a radicalization of the Democratic Party, but it's moving you know, a few clicks to the left in response to rising inequality and the crisis that was created after 2008. So if the left has moved just a few clicks to the left and the right has become in many ways radicalized or it's moved pretty far to the right and pulled a lot of the moderates either to the right or put them off the spectrum, do you think that the center or the vital center, as Arthur Schlesinger called it, do you think that will hold? With the center, there's always a problem in discussing a center. It's worth noting that Arthur Schlesinger's vital center was a moderately progressive center, right. and that in many ways, Goldwaterism was a rebellion against that center, and it succeeded in pulling the center to the right. Mm-hmm. So I think it's hard to talk about a center in, as some abstraction, uh, because it always depends who's to the right and who's to the left. Mm-hmm. I think there's always a struggle to define the political center. The other problem with the center as a concept is there are many 
centrist voters who disagree on everything. You know, the, the example I like to give is imagine one person who is very strongly pro-labor and pro-welfare state, but pro-life on abortion. Mm -hmm. And imagine another person who is pro-choice on abortion, but very free market, low taxes, anti-labor, anti-welfare state. They are both in some mathematical sense centrists, (laughs) and yet they disagree fundamentally on everything. And, you know, that's the difficulty with talking about a centrist politics. On the other hand, moderation is more a habit and a disposition than some abstract location on a political spectrum. And I am more and more over the years become skeptical of centrism because I know less and less about what it actually means. I am more and more sympathetic to moderation in the sense that, as Isaiah Berlin said, um, you know, we often face tragic choices between competing goods. Mm -hmm. uh, And that a lot of politics is uh, trying to find a balance. Um, you know, how do you balance uh, liberty against equality? How do you balance uh, mercy against justice? There are, there are a whole list of things where they are not exactly polar opposites, but getting more of one often involves getting less of another. And it seems to me a moderate politics is based on the notion that there are trade-offs of various kinds and that we need to have relatively civilized conversations about how we're going to manage those trade-offs and that we can have principled disagreements about those without tearing each other's heads off, understanding that at different moments in history we may adjust more in one direction than in another. What do you think of the... Are you optimistic about the possibility that American politics will will be characterized by moderation in the near future? Uh, not any time between oh. now and November. Yes, of course. Um, <laughs> but you know, I think a lot of a lot of Americans are, even when they have very very strong political views. I have pretty strong political views, uh, or I have very strong uh, political views. But I think a lot of Americans value uh, moderation when they experience it and when they see it. You know, I grew up in a very politically diverse family. Every Thanksgiving involved passionate political arguments. This was in the 60s, the Vietnam years, and, uh, you know, the extended family was a full spectrum. And I learned in those years that you could passionately disagree with someone about politics and still quite literally love them, Uh, that that's not impossible. And I think a lot of people have managed that in their own lives, Uh, but we have a heck of a time doing that in our politics now. And I think that we and this is uh, this is not a criticism of the right this is a criticism of our time we all tend to see people as abstractions because of their political views and when you see a lot of the nastiness on the web or on twitter you know it's because people stop treating other people as human beings and more as a representation of everything they hate mm-hmm. about politics one of the things i love to do on twitter is tweet about sports because suddenly you scramble the alliances. And uh, during the uh, World Series in 2013, when my dear Red Sox triumphed, I picked up a whole bunch of new right-wing Red Sox fans <laughs> as followers. And one of my favorite moments came when we won and some conservative tweeted out, I guess I'll have to go back to hating everything EJ writes. <laughs> and I tweeted him right back and I said, oh, come on, wait till tomorrow morning. Um, you know, in the meantime, I alienated all of my uh, liberal friends who rooted for someone other than the Red Sox. But... <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I, I like that moment because I said, wait a minute, you know, he's a human being, I'm a human being. We might think that the other is completely out to lunch on politics, right. but we were able to connect on this other level. And 
Uh, we don't do that very much anymore. It seems easier to just pigeonhole people as uh, representing, you know, uh, a certain position. And Lord knows I can be very polemical uh, myself at times. So I'm not arguing that I am by any means the perfection of this, uh, of what I'm recommending. But I, I, there is a sort of weird dehumanization that's gone on in our political discussion. And I wish, you know, we, uh, we, we'll never have common ground. We'll never even start looking for where we might have common ground if we can't at least say, this person is of moderately good will, right. and let's talk about it, you know? So you, you've said before that you became a liberal at 13. Uh, why the transition then? A couple of reasons. One is that, you know, I may be in that small minority who was converted to liberalism by the Great Society. So I grew up in a conservative family, conservative household. Um, my, uh, but I, my parents were... And this is something else I'm aware of that most liberals won't recognize. My parents were very open-minded mm -hmm. conservatives. Mm -hmm. And my dad encouraged me to argue with him. He thought it was good for kids and, you know, sons and fathers, kids and fathers and mothers to argue. And, you know, when I looked around at the great society after the Goldwater election, I said, wait a minute, these liberals, these Democrats are trying to solve a lot of problems that need to be solved. And uh, that's when I first got interested in uh, the liberal Republicans uh, Jeffrey Cabaservice, who wrote a book about moderate republicanism, found a, an embarrassing letter from me as a 15-year-old to the Rippon Society asking them if they would let me be a member of the Rippon <laughs> Society, being that old liberal Republican organization that was very innovative, by the way, in its ideas. They were for a negative income tax. They were early advocates of the end of the draft. Um, and, um, you know, so it passed through liberal republicanism, and I realized sort of by after the 68 election, this doesn't work anymore. And that's oh, when I sort of went all the way over to the other side. And, you know, and I realized that my politics were fundamentally social democratic in college. I was influenced a lot, actually, by one of the great university classes ever taught, which was a debate between Michael Walzer and Robert Nozick, two great philosophers called Capitalism versus Socialism. And while Nozick dazzled me, Nozick was mm -hmm. a wonderful, brilliant man arguing for libertarianism, you know, my heart was already with Walzer and he pulled me over. And Walzer is probably the closest thing I have to a kind of moral guide in politics in terms of writers mm -hmm. about politics. Um, the other thing that happened with civil rights, and uh, I, I was, I'm Catholic, went to a great Benedictine school and we had to write a uh, book report on a religious book. And the book I chose was Martin Luther King's Strength to Love, which was a collection to, of his sermons. And um, that really was, you know, I grew up in a town that was almost all white. Uh, this, you know, the African-American reality was very distant from me uh, where I grew up. And um, it was white working class. Um, and uh, this really shook my way as somebody who was Catholic, who was Christian, mm -hmm. um, you know, gave me new ways of thinking about what it meant to be a Christian in social and political terms. So those... Those were two things that kind of began my journey to the left side of the political spectrum. And then it's kind of confirmed in the Vietnam years and other things that happened. And you've written, you've written for Commonweal, or you, you yes, write for Commonweal, they, which yeah. is a liberal Catholic yeah. uh, publication. I, I was raised Catholic as well, and went to Catholic school. I actually come from Kennedy Catholics, as, as they've been called, right? Relatedly, what do you think about the, about the role of religion in America today? And what do you think about the role of liberal Catholicism in America today? Is it as big as it was before? Is the social justice Catholicism as big as it was before? I think it's making a massive comeback okay. under Pope Francis. Francis right. 
You know, the role of the, uh, I teach actually at Georgetown a course on religion and American politics and um, whether, you know, whether religion as an influence was waxing or waning, it's always part of American politics. The late Jean Bethke Elstein said that separation of church and state is a very different concept from the separation of religion and politics, mm -hmm. uh, that um, I believe it's impossible for a genuinely religious person not to have their political views influenced or inflected by their religious views. I once debated Ralph Reed of the Christian Coalition, mm -hmm. and I said I'll always defend Ralph's right to have his political views influenced by his religious faith, because a lot of my views on poverty and social justice were influenced by my faith. But Ralph has to show me where in his uh, Bible he finds Jesus supporting cuts in the capital gains right. tax. I just <laughs> right, right. cannot find that anywhere. Um, <laughs> you know, and so uh, you know, we've gone through phases in this, but I think we're going through a very, uh, something very different is happening at this moment in our history, which is the rise of religious disaffiliation among young people. Mm -hmm. The data are really striking that in the millennial generation, 30 to 35 percent of millennials say they have no connection to organized religion. Now, people say, well, young people are always less religious, which is broadly true. But this cohort is very different from the same you know, age cohort mm -hmm. 20, 30, 40 years ago. There is a real crisis of uh, affiliation to religion. And I think that one of the reasons, uh, and John Green at the University of Akron has written about this, and actually we wrote a little bit together about this, um, uh, although I attribute the thought largely to John, that um, it's striking that you've had a rise at the same time of a much broader-based secularism, mm -hmm. if you will, along with the rise of a religious conservatism as a political force. And so it's no wonder that the religious conversation has become more polarized because two very strong sets of voices mm -hmm. who are absolutely opposed, in some deep sense, opposed to each other, are two of the most important sets of voices. And then what happens with young people, um, you know, people under 30, 35 mm -hmm. over the long run, is a fascinating issue for us. And what you've seen shrink is what you might call, for lack of a better term, the religious center. You know, they, many of the mainline Protestant denominations have suffered some declines. Now, I think they may have been a forerunner. You're actually seeing kind of, a, you know, Baptists have started to either level off or lose some uh, strength. Even evangelicals are losing some ground to the, to the non-engaged. So maybe the mainliners were harbingers of something that was mm -hmm. coming. But, um, you know, many of the people who might have been believers and churchgoers have, in this climate have found it easier to slip into secularism or disaffiliation than they might have a couple of generations ago. But to, to go back to the beginning of your question, I think there is a re there The religious left never went away. It was kind of eclipsed by the religious right. Mm -hmm. And I think the press, honestly, started paying a whole lot more attention to the religious right than it did to religious uh, progressives. But we forget that in our history, whether it's the civil rights movement, many, many parts of the anti-war movement in the Vietnam years, uh, many of the early progressives, let alone the abolitionists, were all came out of mm -hmm. very strong set of religious uh, convictions. And I think in the case of the Catholic Church, I think uh, Francis 
has definitely opened the doors again to progressive social justice uh, Catholicism. He's made very clear that he does not want the concerns about poverty to take a back seat right. to abortion. On the contrary, I think if you read him carefully, and I'm sure some of my more conservative Catholic friends might want to debate me on this, but I think if you read him carefully, he really has put the poor and a concern for the poor at the forefront right. before almost anything else. And if you look at some of the bishops he has appointed, like Archbishop Supich in Chicago, these are social justice Catholics like the great social justice Catholics of a generation and a half ago, like Cardinal Bernadine mm -hmm. in Chicago. So I think something is definitely going on here. And the split in the evangelical world brought about by the Trump nomination is going to be very interesting to follow that over time and see what that does to the evangelical political movement. Mm -hmm. Well, just related to one of the points you, you made about secularization among liberal Christian or Catholic Catholic or Protestant youth, David Hollinger, who you just recently talked with at the Hauenstein Center, in his book, After Cloven Tongues of Fire, talks a great deal about that and about the concern among conservatives that's, in, I think, in many ways um, valid uh, that liberal uh, Christians, in, in effect, secularize their own children out of their tradition. And I think a lot of, of that 30 to 35 percent that you're talking about, a lot of them are just the children of liberal Catholics and, and Christians. And I, I myself am part of this group. It is it is very interesting. And it's it's an interesting social... Although you are yeah. seeing some defections from conservative, theologically conservative families, Oh, sure, too. sure. You know, yeah. I, in other words, I, I agree that there does seem to be some evidence that liberal Christians may have a little bit more trouble conveying the faith or, you know, right. transferring the faith to the next generation, but not entirely. I, I don't think they're alone. I think the secularizing trend Effect. is affecting, um, uh, you know, the, the polls show there is uh, a particularly large defection from Catholicism, mm -hmm. uh, and there's a smaller, significantly smaller defection from evangelicalism uh, is what it would appear. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that they, the more conservative traditions and denominations are being affected by this too. A lot of these points are sociological and it uh, brings up uh, one thing I did want to ask you. So you have a doctorate actually in sociology from Balliol College at Oxford, which you received in 1982. Did you at one point endeavor to become an academic uh, sociologist uh, before you became a, a journalist no, and commentator? Well, I, the first acknowledgement in my dissertation is to the Pressman's Union of the New York Times for going on strike hmm. in 1978. <laughs> and what happened is that I have always, the three things that I have always been very drawn to are politics, academic work, and journalism. Mm -hmm. uh, and at different moments, you might order them slightly differently, but they've really always been three personal loves of mine in a professional sense. So I did not set out to be an academic, and I never ruled out being an academic. Sure. And when I finished, you know, I joke sometimes that one of the reasons I finished my dissertation is because so many of my friends said, oh, you're never going to get that thing done, because I was working <laughs> at the time. So right. the, my dissertation was my hobby, and I refer to it as my <laughs> mail-order doctorate because I literally put it in the mail to Oxford, and then you living in flew America? over. I was living in okay. the U.S. at that point. I had fulfilled my residency, and I flew over... Uh, on a vacation to defend it, borrowed a gown from somebody because oh, wow. I had to wear my gown to defend the dissertation. <laughs> and 
at Oxford. So I always had in my head that this might be something I wanted to do. I never stopped loving academia mm -hmm. uh, or enjoying academic things, but I just wasn't sure where I'd end up. And, uh, you know, I was lucky in journalism because I kept getting jobs that were interesting to do and fun to do. So I... You know, I've been, if I may, since we raised religion, say I feel very blessed because I've been able mm -hmm. to get a, have, um, you know, participate in journalism, continue to participate in journalism mm -hmm. while also having uh, an academic connection. And I, you know, really appreciate the chance that I have to do that. And, and you know, uh, a lovable, if I guess corrupt, uh, city councilman in my hometown once uh, said about something, you know, well, look, one hand washes the other. Uh, and uh, I think that in the case of journalism and uh, an academic concern, they really can work together mm -hmm. uh, very well because they, you know, one tries to find out what's true fast and the other takes a little more time about it. And, you know, the, the journalism teaches you to write fast and to try really hard to explain things to, to a very broad audience or talk to Mm -hmm. Let alone forget even explain things. Just talk to a broad audience. And, you know, the academic side pushes you to ask not the first and second questions, but the fourth and fifth and sixth questions. Mm -hmm. And so I found that the communities of people I've been able to been part of through the two has been really enriching. And I feel very lucky in that. I have, I have one last question for you, EJ. So we've talked about the right and the possibility of reform and perhaps developing a more sort of Burkean conservatism, perhaps. What about the left? How would you like to see your party evolve in the near future? The I talk about this in, in the book on the right because I thought, okay, you're a liberal writing about conservatives. You ought to say something about your side. Mm -hmm. And there are a couple of things here. One is sort of, if you will, on the left side of the argument, I really do think that liberals should be ashamed that it, to some degree, took Donald Trump uh, to highlight the pain uh, felt by people who have been flattened by economic change, mm -hmm. by the deindustrialization, globalization. And liberals say, you know, and I don't want to knock all liberals. There are some really committed liberals who've talked about these folks for years, but you know, if you are a liberal or a social democrat, uh, one of your missions in politics is to uh, give these folks a new chances at opportunity. And I think in general, as a society, we have failed to do that, that you talk about broken promises. After every trade deal, people are told, well, there'll be some folks who'll lose out in this, but they're going to be better off. Well, that's true of some people. It's not been true of a lot of people. Mm -hmm. You saw that, I think, most strikingly in the Michigan primary, when both Trump and Bernie won going away uh, with a lot of opposition mm -hmm. to free trade. But the, there's a particular liberal obligation here because there are actually two groups of people who've been particularly flattened by economic change. Uh, besides white working class people, particularly men, uh, there are inner city African-Americans. Mm -hmm. And you know, years ago, William J. Wilson up at Harvard wrote a powerful book called When Work Disappears about the cost of deindustrialization of people in the inner city. We need a politician or a group of politicians who can pull these. These two groups are often at each other's throats in American politics. And we desperately need politicians who can talk simultaneously to both of these groups. I, I was very influenced. Bobby Kennedy was shot and killed when I was 16 years old. And I'm like a lot of people my age who was very 
influenced by this gift that Kennedy seemed to have in 1968, when also uh, white working class folks and African Americans mm -hmm. were kind of at each other's mm -hmm. throats of talking and winning trust from both of them. So I think the, you know, um, you know progressives need to uh, take a series of steps to uh, toward uh, reducing inequality that are stronger, more robust than the ones we've taken. I worked with part of a group of people at the Center on American Progress on a report on this. Um, Joe Stiglitz wrote an interesting report for the Roosevelt Institute. There are some policies there and some ideas to, you know, to push back against uh, the inequality that we have seen. At the same time, on cultural questions, I, I really hate uh, culture war uh, mm -hmm. politics. Um, you know, I like to say that, um, you know, that uh, if the culture wars exploit our discontents and the task of politics is to heal them. And as I write in the book, I, I have for, you know, partly because I am, you know, a churchgoer and have always had a gut sympathy for religion, I do not like what sometimes comes off t uh, to, not, not, to believers as a certain arrogance toward religion mm -hmm. that liberals uh, can show. Not all, again, not all liberals. Barack Obama has talked about religion in a remarkable right. way. So is Hillary Clinton, who is a deep, for whom religion is very important. But I think there is this sense of arrogance on these questions. And I, I um, you know, I always say that every conservative, social conservative I know who has daughters is a feminist. And every social <laughs> liberal I know wants his kids to stay off porn sites right. and to live up to certain values and work hard right. as much as any social conservative dad or mom do. And so we got to try on these cultural questions to uh, channel Taylor Swift, stop hating, 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 hating. I mean, uh, <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and so I'd like to sort of ease the culture wars and ease the inequalities. And then I think we might be a slightly easier country to live in. Well, thanks very much for talking with it's, me, EJ. Uh, great to be with you. Thanks. That was EJ Dion Jr., a columnist at the Washington Post and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. To learn more about EJ and his work, we recommend you read his column, which you can find at WashingtonPost.com. Also, be sure to pick up a copy of his book, Why the Right Went Wrong, at fine bookstores everywhere. Be sure to tune in next week for our interview with Maureen Corrigan on her recent book, So We Read On how The Great Gatsby came to be, and why it endures. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. Gleaves Whitney is director of the center and producer of this podcast. Travis Wheeler edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.